Welcome to Adventures in Growth, a podcast and newsletter highlighting the secrets to success of emerging leaders in tech who have followed their own paths. Every week, we host innovators operating in the trenches at game-changing tech companies who share their stories to break down how they've thought about building legendary careers, leading outstanding teams, and designing the life they really want. Make sure to subscribe for regular updates at adventuresingrowth.co. This week, we're speaking with Mauro Mujica Paroti, who joined Salesforce in 2021 after its acquisition of Narrative Science, where he was chief product officer. As with all of our guests, Mauro charted his course to tech leadership via a non-traditional route, serving as an infantry officer in the Marine Corps before studying for his MBA at the Kellogg School of Management and working as a management consultant at McKinsey. Our discussion touched on a range of topics, from AI to product management, to strategy lessons from his military service. As you'll hear, Morrow has a truly exceptional perspective on leadership, and we'll take a deep dive into some of those views in today's pod. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. Mauro, welcome to Adventures in Growth. Welcome to the boudoir, the studio, where we talk adventurous things. Tell us a little bit about what you're up to these days. How's life at Salesforce? What's going on in the market? Yeah, sure. Salesforce is... It's an interesting time at Salesforce. I'm sure you've been reading the paper across the tech industry. There's a lot of layoffs going on, but particularly to Salesforce, it's actually a pretty exciting time because, you know, they're trying to pull off something very big and really create a product built for the next generation of tech. And it's pretty fun to watch a big company kind of do a pivot that hard. So I'm in uh, product management there. I would join Salesforce back in the uh, end of. 2021 by acquisition. Prior to that, I was CPO at Narrative Science, a generative AI company. We built kind of the first business user, you know, focused BI product, business intelligence product. Yeah. Other than that, things are good. Got two little boys that are keeping me busy. Moved from Chicago to Annapolis. So oh, nice. Those are, those are, okay. Yeah. Those are big things. Exciting stuff. We've got plenty to cover today, but to that end, we'd love to talk to you a little bit about narrative science because obviously, you were there five to seven years ago and you were there for an extended period. So we're seeing now a lot of news about generative AI. It's hit the headlines in the last six months or so. What's your perspective on that, given what you experienced at Narrative and how you saw that technology developing? Like what sort of stands out for you, given some of the developments recently? So a few things. One, it is following the same kind of template that just technology fads go through in terms of you know, 10 years ago, every CIO or executive at a big company was like, give me AI to do what? To solve what problem? I don't know, but give me AI. Here's a hammer. I don't know what. Yeah, I need exactly, to say, just right? hammer something. But look, what I will say about generative AI, you know, look at chat GPT, some of the other ones, the growth rate is pretty exponential. And so I think the difference between where we are as a kind of people, society versus kind of earlier, even in the 80s, is this spread between technology and when ethics can catch up to it is getting bigger and bigger. And so it's just going to get to the point, I think, where technology is just going to outkick our ability to be ready to handle the ramifications and implications of it, right? You mentioned the ethical component of generative AI. How did you manage that when you were at Narrative Science? To what extent did you have to think about that given the solution you were building, but 
how do you think it needs to be addressed today, given some of the advances over the last, even the last six months and the explosion yeah. of AI today? Truthfully, because of our use case, particularly in business intelligence for enterprise company, there had to be an understanding. There had to be at least some element of deterministic kind of behavior, right? So that you could at least open up the box and see why certain decisions were made. Now, there was still non-deterministic behavior, but it was very localized in where that would apply. But if an analytic, you know, if a number was kicked out, that was the result of a piece of analysis. That's not at all really how, you know, ChatGPT is operating, right? It doesn't really know why it's saying what it's saying. And so, you know, you can say what's well, 10 times six and it may produce 60, but like it may totally not. Right. And so when you're kind of dealing in that kind of world, it doesn't work great for, you know, specific applications. So that end of narrative, you said you were building BI tools. What do you think the impact of some of the new AI tools will be on on businesses like Salesforce, where we're seeing a lot of automation? I read a headline today of an engineer saying he's using chat GPT for 80% of his tasks. Right. And I think that kind of Work process flow automation is going to have a really big impact. How do you see that impacting Salesforce, other businesses that have perhaps been more reliant on traditional tech? You know, it's like perfect for me in the sense of, look, I kind of know what I want to say, but I don't want to, you know, the last 10% of making it shiny and nice takes me way too long. And so I think as a last mile kind of approach of saying, Hey, I want to say these five things. I don't need to think too much about wordsmith and everything. Just kind of present these ideas and give me five different ways of doing so. That anywhere where that kind of is a requirement and it, that can greatly accelerate people's workflows. You know, same thing in marketing, right? Like, hey, we need 50 different ways to say the same thing. It's like click of a button, you're done, right? And so that bulk, either I need a bulk output of different ways of saying the same thing or just make what I'm thinking shiny or like huge value adds. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because the other day I was doing some research and I asked ChatGPT to build a table of certain businesses with contact details and all of the product lines and brand names because I was doing some market research. And so that kind of thing where traditionally you've got the junior associate Google searching, building a slide deck. I kind of I fear for those juniors at the lower end of the scale in law and professional services because now that can be done by AI. That's I think where you're going to see a real, a really big impact, as you say, the sort of the mass or the volume produced work that is kind of commoditized, right? Yeah, but it's like anything else, right? People find their gaps, right? Like they take away something, well, that allows us to up level and take on different tasks. I mean, that's just what technology has done over the years. But what is also pretty in its most idealistic way, it could allow us to communicate with one another better because, you know, when I write an email, it's in my tone, right? But really, it should be in your tone. It should be written in a manner in which you're going to understand it best, not the way I want to say it the best. And so being able to say, this is what I want to say, but hey, I'm talking to this kind of individual or I'm talking to, you know, someone who's a little more technical or someone who's a little less technical, that becomes pretty powerful. Yeah, it's interesting because you you built BI tools. To what extent did you use scoring to give a sense of the ef the efficacy of a recommendation or an insight? Because I've used free mail, for example, I use Boomerang, and so the thing I find helpful is it gives me some sense of the likelihood of getting an open. Whereas with ChatGPT, even though it can construct an email, what I don't get a sense of whether or not that's 
good, bad, or likely to be opened. Did you try and solve for that when you were at narrative? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have kind of, you can view this as a discrete problem or a kind of iterative problem, right? And so is it a kind of reoccurring learning going on? And so for us, it wasn't just tell us whether you like this text or not that we produced. It's what is the path people go through for analyses, right? The beauty of language is, at least for us, you have to know what things are. You have to know how to say those things. But most importantly, you have to know how they relate to one another. And when you have that mapping, then you can literally understand how people evaluate different topics, how different people at different levels or different functions evaluate the same thing. And then you can kind of score it as, what do we think they're going to find the most interesting next or the most important next? Now, where you do have to be careful is kind of (laughs) the whole social media problem, which is like, all right, you want to show them what's important, not necessarily what's kind of cool or anything else. So you have to, we had to have very strict kind of view on really elevating what was important, not just interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating hearing you talk about that because- You eventually became chief product officer at Narrative Science, but you didn't have a background, as far as I'm aware, in generative AI. So how did you get yourself up that curve to become an expert in a product like that? Because I think this is the challenge a lot of people face now, where maybe they haven't come from a technical background and they're faced with this new technology. How did you approach that to get to that position? Yeah, I mean, I'm as surprised as anyone, to be honest. I have seven patents that I'm an inventor on, like in the the space. It's like what happened? Like, how on earth did this happen? Well, so a few things. One, I do think kind of my background as a Marine, as well as going into McKinsey, gave me a at least confidence that I could step into new situations and at least hold my own, right? And give myself enough space to learn and appreciate kind of the expertise that was around me. You know, the second thing is, as I started kind of moving up, kind of one of the big areas was when I had to take over engineering. This definitely came from my military background. I was like, I have to, I don't have to, because I don't think it's required to lead, but out of respect for the craft, I need to learn something about this. So I got my master's, second master's in computer science. And so, you know, you become kind of, you build up knowledge, but you build up kind of experience. And then you surround yourself with very smart people. And I love being the dumbest guy in the room. It's the best thing. You know, and there science that was also the case. It was great. It was a privilege. I've got that down to a T as well. I'm, I'm very good at being the dumbest person in the room. I was just going to say, the dumbest person on this podcast. <laughs> it's a race, <laughs> a race to the dumbest bottom. But it's, race it's, to the it's, it's interesting. You mentioned before your experience in the Marines. I think it's fascinating that you went from the Marines serving in Iraq, then to business school and consulting, and then generative AI into tech. And it's an amazing switch from very different skill sets how did you manage that switch like what were the sort of key principles that you drew upon to be able to move from such different fields and build your career in that way yeah i'll be honest i didn't view the military as a stepping stone i thought it was going to be a thing that i felt was important for me to do and then i'd kind of start my real life after that then i went to kellogg and i realized pretty quickly well a lot of what i know is actually like foundational to what they were trying to teach. I didn't know anything about finance, but you know, all the things around leading people and strategy and all that, it was like marketing is targeting ops, right? It's information operations, there's all sorts of parallels here. 
And so then I went to McKinsey and it really sunk in for me because at McKinsey, it's all about how do you abstract things? How do you kind of approach things from a structural level? Because what they're not kind of promoting, certainly at the early tenure, is you're going to be an expert in everything. In fact, you're a generalist. That's the model. And you leverage experts, but really your superpower is the lateral thinking and the raw problem solving of understanding and separating out facts, logics, and assumptions, right? And if you can kind of understand that, then it gets a lot easier to solve anything. And I think that was one of my true beliefs. And I do think it allows me to hire a little better, which is, you know, hiring really, for the most part these days, is how do I minimize risk? Have the job spec, and I want you to look exactly like this. And if you don't, you know, you're not going to pass my screening filter. And I think really a lot of knowledge can be abstracted and applied. And while the answer may be different, the structure is fundamentally the same. And then, you know, once we kind of felt comfortable in that, you get confident, right? I would be remiss as the marketer on this call not to ask the follow-up breakdown information ops for us and how it relates to marketing. I've never heard of that before. I'd love to know. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about a lot of what we were doing was counterinsurgency. And in that kind of environment, the human terrain is way more important than the physical terrain, right? So tribal membership and who's the real strong influencer of it never follows like geographic boundaries. It's like that guy actually runs things, but he has no formal position. Okay, well, why don't those two people get along? Well, about 150 years ago, that guy killed that guy's, you know, livestock and they're still pissed about it. And like, you need to know that stuff, right? You need to be able to understand that stuff because what looks kind of logical, like, oh, let's just get these two guys together, breaks down real fast. And so then you have to be able to, how do you use that? How do you kind of push information out there to start shaping exercises? Right, because it's not just a direct action, it's all of the things that you do before that to create a conducive environment to you know leading to a successful outcome. They're gonna look at things through totally different lenses, right? A lot of this was at the macro level, right? Like you know, Sunni, Shia, the Kurtz, all that. So it was amazing to go through Kellogg and be like, Oh my god, this would have been so helpful four years ago. It's funny you mentioned that because you told us before that you didn't think anything from your military experience would be applicable to business. But what changed that realization that that wasn't the case? Like, what was that moment where you're like, actually? My first trimester at Kellogg, I was like, whoa, I'm not like a complete idiot here, right? Like, it, I, it just, I had to translate everything, but it was pretty straightforward, right? Like, to again, abstract and be like, oh, here's what's actually happening here. We were doing kind of all the strategy stuff. And it was very similar to how I would think about kind of thinking through operations, right? You know, but you know, I was an infantry officer, right? So you don't exactly think, oh, you know, this is definitely going to be useful to me, you know, going into consulting or going into finance or going into tech or any of those. So it, it was a pretty big surprise. And then it really became clear as I started becoming more of a people leader. If I can follow up on that real quick, you know, when we chatted before, you know, you have so many really awesome things to say about leadership. And I guess just kind of thinking back, you know, culturally between, you know, your experience in the military and your experience 
later consulting and particularly in startups and tech, where have you seen differences and similarities between the understanding of what leadership is and how has that kind of informed your approach along the way? Yeah, I mean, I do think fundamentally the, you know, going back to the structure and abstraction, I think the approach is similar. I think the environments are totally different. And so therefore your tactics and the implementation of your approach is totally different, right? So, okay, in the military, we do have rank, right? And so there is kind of a understanding of hierarchy, but, you know, I will be the, that is often a very uh, misconception that is often made around, particularly in kind of the communities of infantry, this you know, SOCOM units and all that, which is you don't just order someone to do something, right? Like we're risking our lives out there. It's not like go do something like, yes, sir. Right. Like I'll go do that stupid thing you want me to do. Like that's not exactly how it works. It comes from all the pre-work. It comes from building up that real trust with one another so that at the point of contact, when you give the order, then it's, we don't need an explanation. We got it. And so what's the takeaway? Like, you got to invest in the trust side up front. You got to go through the training together to kind of build that confidence so that by the time an order comes, you're not using hierarchy anyway, right? But I do think, you know, if you come from a highly structured environment and then you go to a completely decentralized one, it can be disorienting. I was never really good at the hierarchy thing. You can look at all my fitness reports. Uh, that was probably not my forte. So, that was fine for me to get over. But yeah, that's kind of one element. The other is, particularly in McKinsey, was very useful. You don't have positional authority at all, right? You're a consultant. And so how do you still drive change? How do you still kind of drive substantial change when you have no real authority to do that? And so what are kind of all the tactics that go into that? And I'd say that is really the same thing, particularly at a large company, but any company where you know, as an executive or just any level, it's never just your team you're leading. In fact, it's always going to be the adjacent teams and different functions and kind of there's always going to be this thing outside of what you control if you're trying to do something bigger than yourself. And so that training and combination with the military training was pretty foundational in my, my capacity to do that at Nared Science and then at Salesforce. To that end, how have you taken those lessons and applied them to the businesses, companies you've been at. So how have you built that trust in a professional environment where you don't necessarily have the boot camp and the structured process of making someone marine ready? So I do think a lot of it is the first 30 days, the first 90 days are pretty critical, right? Because especially as a leader, when you're coming in, not as you know a junior person, but you're coming in as either a mid-level or senior person, how you come in is going to either turn everyone off or it's no one's going to immediately be like, yay, there's always going to be that butt sniffing kind of timeline. But I think part of it is one, you can disagree with people. You can come in with opinions, but can you be convinced to move off those opinions? And I think that's what really matters. You know, if people see, okay, this is someone who's not just kind of a, a lot of people say, I'm not going to make any decision or may have any opinions until 90 days. I think that's a total mistake. You got to form those quickly, but you have to understand those are not convictions. They are opinions. And your job is not to be right. It's to get to right. And so allow people to push you around and to beat up your ideas. 
And when they know you're receptive towards that, that builds up an element of trust. The second thing is you have to lead from the front. And I'm not saying, you know, you have to be the point person, but you have to be at the front of where things are happening and the point of friction, right? It's like, team, this is super hard. I'll see you tomorrow. It's like, that's not going to work, right? And they have to be able to know that you're in it just as much as they are, particularly the people who have been there way longer than you at, at a startup or something like that. And I think the third thing is don't play games. Like what you say has to mean something. It just does. Right. And I think people, I'm not sure that is the most, <laughs> the most celebrated uh, principles or characteristics, but I think fundamentally, if you are known as what I say is going to happen, not from a, I'm going to hit this revenue and it's magically going to happen, but it's, I'm going to be here for you, or this is, I'm going to say, you know, I'm going to be this kind of character and I end up being that person. That's where trust comes from. No one expects you to predict the future. When you say don't play games, I really want to kind of pick on that a little bit. Like, where have you seen leaders go wrong on that? It's sort of, you know, not take that approach. Look, this is a personal decision. So there's, I think what I made my decision of how I want to kind of conduct myself. And I think at times, maybe it's not the most efficient way to get ahead, particularly at a larger company. But if you are trying to succeed instead of drive value and impact, then yeah, you start like the political games start becoming the end, right? It starts becoming like what you're solving for instead of I'm trying to achieve or we are trying to achieve this incredible kind of destination, this impact. How are we going to do that, right? Oh, we got to talk to that person. We got to talk to that person. Well, a lot of those conversations are going to be hard, right? And if I'm trying to you know, talk out of the right side of my face while really doing something on the left side, that's going to come back to you, right? You will be known as that kind of individual. And frankly, I think it kind of, at least personally, I think it tarnishes your soul a little bit, right? I think you know, you start feeling that a little bit and you become a little aimless of like, you get to the top and you're like, what now, right? Like, what was the purpose of any of this? What did I actually achieve? Something you mentioned in regards to that, actually, is this notion of being bigger than yourself and, you know, not about the reporting structure. Can you expand on that a little bit? Because you talked about this notion of local versus global. And I think that yes. sort of pertains to this idea you're talking about. Yeah. So this is where the training and the background in the military, like, it's pretty unique, right? Because it's kind of the... It is funny that the organizations that are built to defend democracy are essentially the exact opposite of democracy in a lot of ways, right? And so, you know, we don't take votes and stuff when we go somewhere somewhere or another. But what is built into us and really understood is it's not about us, right? The first thing you learn is leadership is service, right? It's not about you as an officer. The second thing is, you're not solving for your unit. You're not solving for your, you know, the people in your unit. You're solving for something higher than yourself. And in fact, if you accomplish your mission, but the purpose of why you were doing your mission isn't solved, you failed fundamentally. So there is like no forgiveness around local thinking. You're always solving for higher. You always have to understand what is the point of what I'm doing. Because the actual operational orders and the orders given are, it's like, all right, that's kind of, it's useful, 
but nothing ever goes that way. So, you know, it gives you some construct to fall back on, but like you have to understand the why behind it. And that's where the improv comes in. And that's where the fun part. Are you saying the Marine Corps is like corporate America with that management or is it the other way around? Other way around, right? Semi joke. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what am I meant right? to do? Yeah, figure that out. Yeah, off you go. But, I mean, how depressing is that? Like most jobs are like, I don't know, I'm just I'm just here and you talk to people when, when you come to an organization, they're like, I don't know. Like I this is just my job. I got told to do this, so that's what I'm doing. And like no one actually wants to live that life. That's the big thing. Like everyone kind of wants something bigger to be part of. And part of a leader's job, if not like the biggest part, is to create that and to really build that environment for people. You mentioned something in sort of that context as well. You talked about mission accomplishment versus team welfare. Like, Tell us a little bit about those concepts and how you thought about that within the context of the businesses you've been at. Yeah. So, I mean, in the military, you know, they make it very clear around mission accomplishment will supersede troop welfare, team welfare. But they also make it very clear of the interdependencies between those two things, right? You can't just put the mission always ahead of your own people because it starts impacting your ability to actually execute the mission. And so understanding that relationship and that you know, if you keep over-indexing on one, at some point, the marginal benefit or the marginal utility actually decreases, then, you know, you start understanding where that line is. And with every unit and in every environment, it's going to be a different place, but it's something you need to understand. But, you know, what I have found is when people have purpose, they're more than willing to make that sacrifice. It's when they don't, they're like, what the hell, why on earth would I put in the extra effort? Right? And if you have to tell people to put in the extra effort, you have failed. You've already lost, right? Like you don't ask people to do that. They do that because you've already set the conditions for that to occur. Well, and assuming that Andy, you've got you know? a team that's bought into it and is willing to do what it takes to make it happen, you don't need to tell them to work harder. But like, you know, at the end of the day, we all can't work 140 hours a week, you know, and for, for a year, right? How do you think about monitoring the balance between those things week and, you know, and kind of adapting week in, week out? Like I actually worked with a superstar GM at Uber who happened to be former McKinsey, who literally used to survey her team with a Google form every week to kind of figure out, like, are they redlining or not? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I do think you need to have a mechanism to actually assess that, right? And you would love for to believe that, you know, you have such a relationship with the people on your team that they're going to feel super comfortable coming up with that. But that's not the truth. Some of them will, but a lot of them won't. So you do have to have kind of these back-end mechanisms to assess where things are. I think the other thing is you have to make it very clear and live up to this, that when there are moments when light just has to come first, the team has to close ranks and support that, right? If people feel really comfortable that, hey, if something happens and I have to divert attention away from work and all that, it's not going to be a big deal because one, my team will understand and they'll be able to cover down on that. And they're not going to like, look down on me for doing that. And actually, I'll be rewarded for taking that vacation for, you know, watching my child go into a baseball game, whatever. You know, I think the 140 hour work is the perfect example of like, yeah, there's no way you're being effective. Like, there's just no way. I do think hard work is a predicate, particularly in a startup. The more ambitious the startup, there's just no easy path. It takes hard work, but smarter, not harder right? Like there is a balancing here. And 
like any kind of operation, there is strategic patience. There's a reason to actually slow down so that you can exploit things when the right opportunity comes. If you're just going 100% the whole time, you're probably not paying attention to like when is the right time to actually redline it. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because I believe, you know, as you say with startups, I think they're very much driven by mission and vision and that buy-in to a mission and vision. And I really believe whatever stage of startup you're at, it's just different levels of dysfunction masked by momentum, right? And momentum yeah, towards no, no, sure. a bigger mission and vision. So when you've been at narrative science or you know moved to Salesforce, how have you imbued your team with that greater sense of purpose? Because without that, it's hard to get people to move towards their goal. And yeah, especially for it, certain products, right? It's not like we're not saving lambs and unicorns. You know, it's like you're building tools for business and in and of itself on a surface level, that doesn't necessarily excite people, right? It's not a mission-driven org. I mean, look, if ah, I will say narrative science was certainly easier, but that said, as a product manager, if you can't come up with, that means you can't come up with it for yourself. So like, why are you even there? There are so many opportunities where that could be the case. That's what gets me up in the morning. And so like, if you're not doing that, don't lie. Just get to the place. I mean, one of the things I talk to Keller grads about is you got to find your tailwind. You can't play other people's games. You can't kind of just do this thing or manage this product because it's going to be a good stepping stone. Because no matter what, someone is always willing to go 100%. Someone is always willing to put down the pedal more. But when you love something, when you're passionate about it, it's a multiplier. So no matter what, if I'm in my jet stream, I can go 80% and I'm still going to outcycle most people because I got all this, you know, air flowing behind me, all this wind propelling me forward. When I just have to like grit my teeth and every day is terrible and all that, like, I don't care how good I am. Like the person who loves it is going to be, it just is, they just are. And so I think that's probably step one. I do think as a leader, this is where culture comes in. And I think a lot of times we try to be everything for everyone as leaders. I know I, I actually experienced that. I felt like I lost myself for a while. And really as a company, I think it's the same way. You want your culture to be very clear like culture is like humidity right like you can't see it but you feel it and you want that you know when you walk into the office or when you join a meeting it's like oh I'm drenched with sweat it's so humid here right and so the beauty of that is people self-selected the more that's apparent the more that's obvious the interview process is already half done because no one's going to interview for that because they'll know from the outside like no one is confused by SpaceX, what that's going to be like. No one's going to be confused by Tesla and what it's like to work there. If you're signing up for that, you've already said something, right? And so I think, by the way, do not take that as condoning anything that is just, but it is a leader establishing this is what I am. This is the culture I want. And I think many people would say, that's definitely not what I want. And that's great, right? Like, don't go do that. And I think those are the ways that you can get people to buy in is there is a bit of self-selection in it. And the more you make it obvious, the less you have to like manufacture things and all of it. I wanted to follow up on something you said, you know, about finding your tailwind and advice that you give to B-School grads. Any, you know, for any of our listeners who are kind of in that life design phase of trying to figure out 
what's next or what gives them passion. Any hacks or tips you have for folks on kind of figuring out what that tailwind is is for them? Yeah. So I'll go back to the So the beauty of when I left McKinsey was really what I felt McKinsey was good for from only this one dimension is telling me what I didn't want to do, right? Like, you know, when I joined McKinsey, it was because I was in the military and then I was like, well, I don't know anything about kind of what are the options. So I'll join McKinsey and then I'll definitely know what I want to do. That did not happen. I left after four years. I loved McKinsey. I had a great experience there, but I was ready. I didn't want to grow up and be a partner. I wanted to go run something. And I left. I was like, wow, I have no idea. How have I not like gone there? And it wasn't till, and it is a bit like a, I'm I'm not sure that's PC. It can be a million options, like shopping on Amazon and all that, right? So really how I found it most useful was to kind of abstract things away from this function or this role or this company and to move more to the foundational elements of things. All right. When I say, you know, when I first uh, was looking at stuff, I was looking at being an operator in a PE shop or going to VC or going to Google or going to startup. And when someone tells you that, you should just assume, oh, they don't have a fucking clue what they want to do. Like, seriously, like those are totally different things, right? Like, why on earth would I leave McKinsey because I didn't love, you know, just being a consultant advisor to go to VC, right? Like that makes no sense, right? And so part of it is, all right, what do I like about myself? Am I a zero to one person? Am I a kind of 10 to 30% person? Or am I, do I love kind of the optimization of an 80 to 100%? Am I like a good to great person, right? Do I need, for me, like, I'm not a great at rules and process. And, you know, I believe process should be in place where it's required, but like rules for rules sake don't make sense to me. And so I had to find a place where they would allow that and where that was, look, best idea wins. Like, I don't care where it comes from, right? Like I'm very much a talent over rank person. And so, you know, I had to find kind of places where that made sense. On that note, you mentioned you talked about the difference in organizations between revenue focus versus great products. And I think that's the same point you made and Andy was talking about, like one of the lenses you can apply. So can you expand on that a little bit about how you think about the comparison between those two things? Yeah, I, there are, and it's pretty clear when you listen to a CEO or whomever, are they talking about the impact and about creating great products or are they talking about the revenue? Now, I want to be very clear about this. Look, money is required to run a business. I'm not saying that, you know, we should do this for just our fun purposes or whatever. But I fundamentally believe if you create great products, people will pay you for them, right? And if that's how you're approaching it, that is something that I can get so much more behind because how do we make this better, right? How do we drive revenue? Make it better, right? Let's think about how we can really create something special. If all they're talking about is we got to hit this quarter, we got to do this thing, we got to do this thing. Hey, it doesn't matter if we make a great product. Like, I don't know, like you got to make a product to close that deal. Well, you know, you do. That's the reality of life. And look, that's part of being a startup is understanding when to do that and when not to do that. But if that's kind of why you're out there is just to get to the next round and to become a unicorn. And that's your purpose. That is so boring, right? Like money is 
an outcome. It's the last part, not the beginning part. It's a signal, right? Yeah. It's a right? signal like, of you actually creating value. Price is, there's no better indicator of value than price in reality. Yeah, but it's also like a shitty one at times too, right? It's like a lot of people make a lot of money for creating no value, right? Like a lot of people are underpaid, right? You know, just look at teachers, right? I mean, so it's an imperfect so, metric. So you've given us a little bit of a lens of what to look for when you're thinking about a company, but you referenced this a little bit earlier on around how you think about talent. And right now you say you're kind of minimizing risk and you're looking for people with a certain profile, but how have you thought about hiring decisions and what is your philosophy around that? Yeah, just to be clear, that's what most people do. That is not how I hire, right? Look, I mean, I think part of it is there are different Hiring for a big company and hiring for a small company is a little bit different, right? In a startup kind of environment, or let's just say up to 500 to 1,000 people, everyone's got to be awesome. Like literally everyone has to be awesome, right? And so, you know, what I look for is someone who is very curious, someone who has a lot of drive, someone who has good judgment someone who has self-awareness. And those are kind of like the key things I'm looking for, right? If they're curious and they're kind of keep asking questions, then I know when they kind of, when they step into an organization, those people just tend to gravitate towards like doing more, right? It's just like, well, I wonder why that's happening. Like this could be better. Where that breaks down is they do it in lieu of sometimes impact, Right. And so that's where the judgment comes in is like, is this a good question to ask or should it, you know, should I still be on this branch or is it time to pull back? And then the, you know, self-awareness part is important. I do think the brilliant asshole is like one thing to just red flag, just don't even touch that, you know, one suboptimal person or one person who's just creating friction. The externality of that is huge. Right. And so I think people really underweight. They just look at, well, this person's an expert in this or this person's. Yeah. But like the toxicity that adds in the extranet, native externality that creates within a unit, the unit is always more important than the individual. And if you have people who don't understand that, get them out of the organization. I think the other thing, you know, with some of the youngins, you know, if they're really young, you can sometimes feel like you could. Like everyone's like that a little bit when not everyone, but when they're young. So I don't want to say never hire them, but you got to look at look how what's the probability that we can put them on the right path. One thing I'll also I do think people changing industries are like high ROI targets, right? Like if they kind of done really well in other industries, but because they don't fit that you know round hole, I think that's a high ROI opportunity. I think. You know, the way I also look at people is like a two by two, you know, talent and then maybe exposure. But really what I'm trying to say is like self-promotion, right? You know that people in the upper right quadrant are like going to be fine, right? They're going to get hired, whatever. They're going to get the promotions. They're going to get the races. That's awesome, right? The people on the top left are the ones you actually need to worry about, right? They're kind of, they, through some veneer, were able to convince you, whatever. But the lower right box it's the silent, quiet all-star that's brilliant, but is not going to stand on a soapbox and say, I'm the best and all that. Those are the, those are huge ROI. And like, if you can kind of suss out 
those individuals and then you pour fire on them, you say, I don't need you to promote yourself. I got you. Like, that's my role. I'm going to hold you up everywhere. You're awesome. You know, mission accomplished, right? It's, it's, you know, whether you do it or someone else does it, it, that's just a past, right? That's a how. How do you identify those people? What are the, the, what lens do you apply to that bottom right box or the top right or the top left? Is there a pattern you can identify? For the bottom right people, I mean, the top right people are easy to identify because they're going to like tell you or not because they're arrogant or anything, but like, you know, I think a lot of PMs are like that, right? Like the bottom right is you talk to the unit and it's like, who are you like most impressed by? And usually that's where a bottoms up approach works, where it's like a lot of people will talk about one name where it's like, that woman is incredible. She's brilliant. You know, she's staying late in the office. I mean, that's not brilliant, but, you know, all these kind of different dimensions or, you know, I've had some engineers where it's like, hey, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. And I've heard they were, you know, very good. I want to understand that. I was like, I'd just be interested in getting your thoughts on this. It's a product question. It has nothing to do with engineering. And I've gotten like five pages of brilliance back. It's like, great. You're the real deal. Like, you're the real deal. And so I think if you don't let kind of the how something is satisfied, right? Like don't make promotions based on standing in front of a group of 50 people and delivering something brilliant. What you care about is the impact they're achieving. If they achieve that through writing something and quietly doing it on the background, they're still driving impact. That's how you need to reward people. But it sounds very much like you have to be proactive about that. You've got a canvas, right? You can't just be sitting back and hoping, because I think that's what does happen often with managers, doesn't it? And that's why people end up self-promoting and it becomes political because managers don't take a proactive stance like you're you're talking about there. It's much more about people coming to them to prove that they're worthy. And so you, you lose that quiet bottom right quadrant because they're not the self-promoters and yeah, you naturally and over-index on the top left, maybe. I would completely agree. That's what most managers do. That's not what most leaders do, though, right? If you're a manager, right? Like, yeah, you're following a process. You want to kind of keep it easy. If you're a leader, you're trying to find ROI everywhere. You're trying to find hidden gems everywhere. People management is about leverage, right? The thing you're levering up on is, right? So the better you are at identifying that and taking, not taking advantage of it, but exploiting that to create an incredible unit, that's how you achieve incredible gains. You, you talked about something interesting related to that around optimizing the slope versus changing it. And, you know, in the context of training and finding good line managers, expand on that a little bit. Tell us about your thinking on that. Yeah. So I think what we were talking about earlier at some point was, once again, another graph. I don't know why. This is the McKinsey consultant. You've yeah, got yeah, yes, right. The, like, the two by two. The chart. Um, exactly. The one slide. But I think if you can, if you look at kind of a timeline view, right? So x-axis is temporal, y-axis being impact or utility or however you want to measure it, right? No matter what, a unit is going to get better. There's going to be some slope that they get better over time just through experience, right? Working together longer, experience, you know, if this is it, just fire the manager, right? Like that's failure of leadership. Great managers are optimizing on that slope, right? They're trying to kind of move up that a little bit faster. And yeah, that'll increase the slope a bit. Leaders change the slope complete, right? And so that change of slope is why did having you in this role change the 
trajectory of this unit, that's how you should be measured, right? Not compared to like no manager to the next best person, right? To the next leader that could have been there. What was the delta between that person and you? And that is the only way you should be measured, right? And so, you know, how do you do that? I think one, you have to set a very high bar. I think one of the key things I learned out of the military is we are really bad at assessing what we can and can't do, right? Like every time I was like, there's no way I could do this. Lo and behold, like when you run out of options, like you can, right? Like you didn't know, you, you didn't think you could, but you can. And you got to set the high bar and you got to live the high bar. Leaders can't set high bars for everyone else except themselves. It has to be the high bar for the unit, yourself included. Then you have to set a vision that's really ambitious, not a point destination, but a true vision. But you should bring it to life with examples. And when and this is where design is awesome to bringing things to life. And you can just flat out say, this is definitely not what it's going to be, but it is a representation of what it could be. Right. And then I think you need to think of kind of the structural milestones, right? The two or three milestones that are going to help you get there build up kind of great systems that support that without being overbearing and then walk the line, right? You have to walk the line because particularly as you become a leader of leaders, you feel so detached from reality. And let's just be clear, the line manager, the person who has the ICs and that first management layer, that unit is the only unit that gets anything done, right? Like everyone else is trying to support them. And if you understand it that way, that everyone else is just there to serve them to accomplish amazing things, great. Where should a leader be? Walk the line, right? Like when we used to do defenses or whatever, every officer knew. Walk the line at 3 a.m. That's where you're going to find out every problem with the unit. That's where you're going to find out who, you know, all the inside spellbud and gouge and all that. You're going to figure out who's shitty, who's great, all that stuff. And that's what you do. That's also how you understand if your principles are actually understood and being used to influence decision making, which is all principles should be used for, right? I mean, it should impact every decision in an organization. So how do you test that? If you're asking the people under you, that's not a test. Like that's not at all assessing is this happening or not. Walk the line and say, hey, what principles did he use to make that decision? If they are not immediately able to state that back to you or how they have been using those principles to make decision A versus decision B, you don't say anything to that person, but you do gently talk to their manager and their manager's manager and you correct that situation very quickly. The 3 a.m. framing of that reminded me of what you said before when we were talking about leadership, that, you know, leadership happens after hours. And, you know, it feels like a lot of what we've been talking about, kind of figuring out the double click on who the, you know, the lower right quadrant people are, it, you know, all involves kind of going the extra mile and being proactive. I 100% agree with you. Is it possible to have true work-life balance while being a leader or do you just need to make a hard choice and decide to not have that if you want to be a good leader? Yeah, you can absolutely be a good leader and and have a work life. I want to be clear. I mean, I have my own take on balance and equal distribution are not the same thing, right? And so, like, I always think of the cartoon of someone, you know, elephant on a you know on a ball, you know, bunch of plates here, and 
one weight over here. It's like, well, I mean, the elephant is in balance, right? Like it is balanced. It's not at all like equal distribution. So, but that said, I do think you can absolutely be a leader nine to five for sure. But I do think the more ambitious the goal, right? The particularly around startups where you're like, we're trying to truly do something that has never been done before. I just, that doesn't fit within those bounds. It just doesn't, right? Like you're trying to pull off the impossible. And the truth is you're competing against people who have a lot more resources, right? So there does have to be an element of like, fine, right? We need some extra, we're going to outthink you. Yes. And we're going to move be more agile. Yes. But it's also like when we find that thing, we're going to hit it hard and we're going to move very quickly. And that's what allows you like smaller companies to outpace larger companies. It's fascinating because I almost feel like startups are like special forces behind enemy lines, aren't they? They're resource limited, resource constrained versus a giant standing army that's got all the resources in the world, but moves slowly and has all these logistics and bureaucratic issues. So that military analogy really applies, I think. The large company thing, you know, the standing army, they're awesome when like the destination is known and it's not going to change and you got kind of the time to start the engine up and the steam train up and great. Awesome. The little tanker going. You know, the more it's going like this, you need agility, right? And you can, I do believe you can build that into a unit. In fact, you can train to that with a unit. In fact, if you're not doing that, I think it's a missed opportunity. At a startup I was at, I did feel like they were a bit sheltered, right? And I did feel like at times the approach we took to kind of everything was almost patronizing, right? Like it was almost like, look, they can't possibly handle this. It'd be too much for them to take like the volatility be too much. I was like, and yet like as an executive team, people would complain about, ah, but the, you know, the employees don't get it and all that. It's like, no, no, like you have this equation backwards right? Start inducing controlled chaos in small pockets and build up their resilience to change and to friction. As long as it's controlled, then all of a sudden, yeah, you can tell them about, hey, we thought we were going to get this funding. It's dropped by two weeks. Hey, we still feel really good about it. They're like, yeah, we've been through this eight million times. Like, we're good. You know, if you're trying to kind of keep everyone safe from that and protected from that, you're only shooting yourself in the foot because real life is not like that in kind of organizations. Yeah. We could talk forever, but I'm conscious of time. Andy, is there anything you wanted to follow up on before we move to the next segment? Yeah, I had, I made a note. I wanted to circle back on this. I love all the consulting frameworks and graphs. It's a tragedy. We didn't get to Harvey balls, but talking about your slope graph, you know, I wanted to, it, it struck me that you thought that people changing industries were really high, high ROI. Is that because they've got a higher intercept? They have a higher slope. Why is someone changing industries kind of like a hidden gem that you found to uh, double down on? I think they're, you know, they're not appropriately valued, right? By people usually hiring. Right. So they're more risky because they haven't done exactly what you're looking for. You know, they may have done it in a different industry, but everyone thinks, you know, what they do is a special snowflake kind of situation. And like, that's just not true. Because if you're solving for someone who understands kind of the, at a structural level instead of memorized it process and that you could see their agility, right? So, by the way, your interview process should not be about knowledge. It should be about 
how much can you handle in terms of ambiguity? And if I kind of throw new environments at you, can you still operate within that? And can you successfully operate that? Great. If you can do that, like you're going to get the knowledge. I'll hire you an expert just to get you up to speed or whatever. But like, I need the horsepower, right? I need what you're bringing to the table. And so I think that's why I think it's just misvalued. It's the old adage, isn't it? Of hire the athlete, hire the person who's, as you said, is adaptable. And I think that's, if you can move industries, as you said, there's only so many levers you can pull in a business. Yes, there's some domain expertise you will need to develop. And there are certain functions that you're not going to go from sales to engineering. But as you say, the in, within certain capabilities, you know that if you hire the athlete, they can figure things out. And that's, that intangible skill set is really the valuable piece, isn't it? It's the thing you can't write down on paper, but you have to demonstrate in different ways. Yeah, and I do think sometimes that statement gets misinterpreted, particularly because it's like athlete. And so everyone thinks of the top right corner of like, yeah, I'm a, but like, why doesn't the sales to engineering thing work? It's because the abstracted qualities of one thing to another, there's no overlap there, right? I mean, there's some overlap, but you're at, it's not the knowledge. It's because even at the abstract level, you're asking for different qualities, right? If it's one thing to another, but the abstracted qualities are the same, then sure, I don't care if it's, you know, engineering to sales. That's just a, that's just what they did, right? So I just want to call that out because I think particularly for those who aren't the loudest or the, you know, most athletic and all that, we're not actually talking about it's can you take your skill set and reapply it in the same kind of ways, not the same kind of ways, but in different situations where those properties are, you know, required. And also when you're hiring, I think this is a mistake a lot of leaders make. They hire for themselves. They, who looks like me, right? Who thinks like me? That's not how units work, right? Like the whole point of a unit is to cover your blind spots, right? Like, yeah, you want kind of strong everyone rowing in the same direction. But like if you're just getting people who kind of think like you, talk like you, look like you, any of those things, you're not actually building up a strong unit. You're just not, as, you know, a lot of breakpoints there happen. I think that's an amazing note to wrap things up on. And perhaps we yeah. get into the next yeah. segment. More, we'd love to, to go into our quick fire questions here at the end. So first off, what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? Other people, you know, as a, it's always the other person. Spoken like a true leader. What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid given what you know now? I think it would be, be careful of the narrative you tell yourself because it's probably wrong. And actually, whatever narrative you tell is actually, you can actually become that trailing, right? Like sometimes we think I am this person. And so that's just who I am instead of, well, I'm just going to tell myself a new story and make that my identity. And lo and behold, you kind of push yourself in a new direction. So maybe that, yeah. What is something you used to believe that you no longer believe? I do think intelligence and drive is an interesting one. I used to think like intelligence kind of superseded most things. And I don't really believe that anymore. I think intelligence is a multiplier, but like you get someone who's willing to, and I, again, I'm not saying a hundred mile, you know, hundred hour work week or anything. I'm just saying someone who's really cares about what they're doing and is passionate about it. 
and like gets lost in what they're doing is like, you know, gonna probably deliver more impact than the brilliant person is, you know, whatever. What don't most people understand about your role in product? I think oftentimes, one, product management is not clearly defined and, you know, it's gone from project management, you know, to CEO of whatever. And the reality is, I think the role is way more about can you come up with the structure and approach to get to the right answer? Not can you get to the right answer, but like PMs shouldn't really have a strong opinion other than their synthesis of the sources of opinions, right? The customer opinion, the internal opinion, the engineering opinion, the design opinion, the executive opinion, the board opinion. Like, how do you take all those? But most importantly, what is the process in which you're going to synthesize that information and actually get to the correct answer, at least the correct in that state, in that given time? What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people don't? I don't know what all successful people believe, but I do think all of us would like to believe, but I think luck has a lot to do with the majority of what companies succeed and don't, what you know people succeed and don't. But I want to be very clear about that. There is a condition that when luck strikes, you exploit it, you take advantage of it. So you do need to be in a really strong place to be able to take advantage of that luck. But there are a lot of people who were in that exact same position and just didn't get luck. Right. And so I think it's, you should kind of weigh that also in like holding up some of these people's deities and all that. So, whatever. What's your favorite under the radar networking hack? I'm not going to be the speaker you talk about networking. I'm terrible at networking. Look, my, my hack is get five to 10 people in your life that you do anything for and they would do anything for you and just make sure a few of them are little social butterflies, right? Because I don't need to network with everyone, but I do need them to network, right? Talk about like a unit mentality. It's like, that's not going to be me. I'm not going to try to be that thing. I just don't find it very fun. Dear God, some of you do. So thank God, right? Be my best friend. That's awesome. Amazing. <laughs> Yeah, some great answers there and so much richness in this conversation. I think we could dive into so many of those areas, but just want to thank you for joining us on this show. It's been awesome hearing you speak and frame some of these issues. Before we wrap, finally, just to sort of give our audience a sense, are there, is there any content you enjoy reading, listening to, any books you want to recommend or things you want to share with our listeners that you think will help them as they think about their careers? Yeah, I mean, the podcast I love probably the most is The Knowledge Project by Shane Parrish. I mean, I love that he's Canadian. So you get all the lovely things that come with having a Canadian talk to you. They're so nice and wonderful. And, but he's so inquisitive and thoughtful. Yeah, that's probably my top one, you know, in terms of things I use to help me out, right? To, to Doist and Google Calendar, like, is the only way I can live my life. Like, I, I need to time block, essentially, things I'm going to focus on. Waking up, Sam Harris, the app, like if you asked me five years ago, how important is meditation going to be? Like would not have, you might've gotten a few comments from me. I think it's foundational. Every leader, I mean, self-awareness has to be a critical part of your journey. And like, 
I don't care how you do it. Maybe it's meditation, maybe some other way, but I do think kind of having that space to to be able to concentrate on those things specifically is pretty critical. That's great. Thanks for sharing those. And again, thank you for joining us on Adventures in Growth. It's been awesome having you on. Amazing. Thank you. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.